Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, everybody. We are in the second week of our three-week series entitled Pit Happens. So last week, we kicked off the series. We talked about the reality that pit happens. And you might be in one this morning, or you might be just coming out of one. But we recognize if you've not yet been in one, you will someday in your life. And in it, it is a faith crisis. It is that place where it feels like nothing is around you but darkness, and you're just flooded with doubts and fears, and the absence of God seems to be most pronounced. And I'm telling you, in those moments, you will question your faith. You will question God himself. You will enter into the experience of many of the Psalms that has its lament by way of nature, the genre of the Psalms, where they're asking God, where are you? And why aren't you doing something about this? And don't you see me? I'm crying myself to sleep every night, and yet you seem so far away or so absent. And so we talked last week, if you find yourself in a pit or coming out of a pit, at least know this, you are in good company. All of God's greatest servants have experienced, and on numerous occasions, the pit or the dark night of the souls that we talked about last week as well. And we find ourselves often in the pit because of a complex and dynamic causation of our own mistakes, our own sins, our own choices, and the sins of others, and the treatment that we receive from others. And so we began then at the end of the message last week taking a look at the story of Joseph to illustrate this fact. And we talked about Joseph comes from a very dysfunctional family. His dad has four different women. They're all giving him different sons. And Jacob's favorite wife is Rachel. And Rachel is Joseph's mom, which means out of Jacob's 12 sons, Joseph is his dad's favorite. And all the other brothers are very aware of this dynamic and this reality that their dad loves their littlest brother Joseph more than them. In fact, his dad, their dad one day, we saw last week, gave their youngest brother Joseph a very ornate robe or a, a robe of many colors, and it became a symbol of favoritism. And in addition, we also saw that Joseph wasn't too bright either. Like, he kept tattling on his brothers. He'd go and come back and give their dad a bad report. And just out of nowhere, one day, he would say to his brothers, Hey, I had a dream. You all bow down to me. And you can imagine how that's not going to go over very well with the brothers. And so Joseph kind of bears his own responsibilities. But today, I want to take a look at three different episodes in the life of Joseph where he finds himself in a pit. So we're going to be reading a lot of the scripture, but, but I want to bring some things out for us in terms of uh, Joseph's life in a pit and what happens in that context. I'm going to be in Genesis chapter 37 is where I'm going to start. And the background is, once again, Joseph's dad, Jacob, has sent Joseph out to go check on his brothers, right? He's got the, hey, I want you to go find out what your brothers are up to, come back and give me a report. That's what's happening. So this is where we begin at the very end of verse 17. Genesis 37, the end of verse 17, it says this. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. You want to know how they probably recognized him? That robe. Ah, oh, they hate the robe. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Now, you get what they're still stewing about, right? What's the issue? What are they still stewing about? The dreams, right? The dreamer. Let's kill him, and then we'll see what happens to the dreams that he has here. But here's what happens next, verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. 
don't shed any blood. Let's just throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but let's not lay a, lay, lay a hand on him. Now, Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back from his father. Now, I don't know if you remember this, but do you know what birth order Reuben comes in? He's the first. He's the oldest. So he's the firstborn son. And my guess is, being the firstborn, he, he probably no doubt felt more responsibility for the welfare of his brothers, including his littlest brothers, no matter how he might personally feel about them, and probably more importantly, responsibility to his father than the other brothers. And so he's got this plan. Well, let's not kill the kid. I mean, we'll just put him in a sister, and that'll be good enough. And then his brain, he's thinking, and then I'll take him back to my dad here later on. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, which, you know, can you picture those? Hey, guys. You know, he's, what happens next? They grab him. They strip him of his robe, you know, that ornate one that he was wearing that they all hated. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. And the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, the first action is to do what? Get rid of that robe. So they take the robe off him and they throw him. Now, I don't, I don't, we don't use the word cistern very often. A cistern is an ancient well. And so just picture in your mind a hole in the ground, deep, but this one tells us there's no water. So they throw him in a pit, literally. Verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, which I find interesting, like, how far away were they from the sister? Like, were they just chomping, mmm, this sure is good. Like, could they hear Joseph crying for help? Like, yeah, they're eating their meal, and they looked up, and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And it was Judah, who was the secondborn, Judah said to his brothers, you know, now that I think about it, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our own flesh and blood. Like, it's so noble, isn't it? I mean, let's not kill the boy. And his brothers agreed. Now, I like this. Now, Judah has a plan. The irony that Judah says, kill our brother and cover up his blood, is ironic to me because Jesus comes from the line of Judah. Like, it will be Judah's descendant that Jesus is born into the tribe of Judah. And he says, let's kill our brother and cover up his blood. That's a sermon for another day, some irony in that. And so, anyhow, he appears noble. Come on, he's, he's our own flesh and blood. But here's what you need to know. Follow the money. Always follow the money. Money will rip through a family faster than anything else. And if you don't believe me, this afternoon, go loan a family member some money and see what happens. What good does it do us to kill our brother when we can make a profit off of it? So verse 28, here's what happens next. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern, and then they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who then took him to Egypt. Now, in this moment, you've got to imagine where Joseph's at. Like, he, he doesn't belong in Egypt. Maybe he's never even been to Egypt. Like, he belongs in Canaan with his father. Now, he might not want to be with his brothers anymore, but he's about to get sold into slavery into a foreign land with foreign people that he does not know. This is a tragedy in the huge, I mean, in huge respects. Like, he's about to get sold into slavery. Now, here in the United States, this is often hidden from us. We don't see this very often anymore. But I'm telling you, in other parts of the world, this is a common thing where kids get sold off, even by their own family members, into slavery. In fact, like places like India, it happens all the time. In fact, there's a picture I want you to see of a girl. Her name is Durga Mala, and here's her story. She grew up in Calcutta, and when she was seven, her father died. Two years later, her mother died, and so it was her grandmother who took in Durga and her three eldest sisters, but she couldn't manage to feed all four of them. One of the girls had to go, 
So she sold off the youngest, just like Joseph. Via an intermediary, a family of total strangers paid 80 rupees for Durga, which would be equivalent in our money to $1.33. Could you imagine being sold off into slavery for $1.33? She traveled alone by train for 1,240 miles to another part of India in Bangalore. She can't remember the journey, but she recalls her arrival. The woman picked me up at the train station. She says, I was afraid, but she told me that I would be well treated. From that day onward, she cleaned the couple's apartment every day, cooked, did the laundry and the dishes. Durga was never paid, was never given time off, and was never allowed to leave the building. The woman beat her often. The man hit her less often, and Durga didn't try to defend herself because her grandmother told her she should always be nice. On the day that she was rescued, she laid crying on the stone floor where she was attempting to cool her back. She was 11 years old and her skin was covered with blisters from her shoulder blades down to her buttocks. A few days earlier, her owners had poured hot oil over her because they thought she was working too slowly. Suddenly, Durga heard screams and huddled on the floor acting on a tip. Police had stormed the apartment in the heart of Bangalore, and when they broke the door down, Durga crossed her arms in front of her chest and closed her eyes. She was only wearing a pair of panties. That's all the clothing that her owners had allowed her to have. And Durga says, I was ashamed. One of the men wrapped a small girl in a sheet and brought her to a hospital, and doctors treated her for a number of days. In addition to her burns, she was malnourished, infected wounds covered her fingers, and her lips were scarred. I dropped a, gla a glass once, she said, and the woman got angry and pulled my fingernails out one by one. Sometimes they poked her in the mouth with a needle. Durga was supposed to work, not speak. It's estimated that millions of children in India live as modern-day slaves. They work in fields, in factories, brothels, and private households, often without pay, and usually with no realistic chance of escaping. The majority of them are sold or hired out by their own families. This goes on all over the world. And it naturally leads to the question, God, where are you in this? And for what? Now see, for Joseph, it's 20 shekels of silver. It's amazing at times what families will sell other member families for years of not talking to each other, if not forever because of grandma's dining room set that didn't go to so-and-so and they thought that it should have after death. Carrying on verse 29, when Reuben returned to the cistern, now he doesn't realize that they'd sold Joseph. So he comes back to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there. And when that happened, he tore his clothes. Now, by the way, back in the ancient Near East, that was a sign of lament, a sign of mourning, like you rip your clothes in those sorts of moments. They left Reuben out of the plans, which I think is interesting. Maybe they thought he would stick up for Joseph. And they went back to his brothers, it says in verse 30, and he said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat. It dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, hey, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Like they didn't know that was the robe. That robe's imprinted in their mind. But it says in verse 33, he recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes. And he put on sackcloth and mourn for his son many days. In fact, all of his sons and daughters, they try to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Now, meanwhile, back to the story of Joseph, we're told in verse 36 that the Midianites sold Joseph in, in Egypt 
to Potiphar, who was an official of Pharaoh. He was the captain of the guard. So pick number one for Joseph is he has just been sold as a slave in the land of Egypt. You want to talk about absent God. You want to talk about where am I? You want to talk about this is not how life is supposed to end up. Joseph is in a pit. Pit number two. Begin the Genesis 39. Two chapters later. Verse one. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And listen to verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph then found favor in his eyes and he made him his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned. And from the time he put him in charge of his household, of all, of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, the emphasis, it's interesting here, is, is on the Lord's favor that is with and on Joseph. It tells us that the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And even Potiphar was able to look at Joseph's life and, life and go, I think his God is with him. Like everything he touches seems to succeed. And Joseph, as a result of the Lord being with him, also then found favor in the eyes of Potiphar. And the Lord will even bless the entire household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. But my question is, does Joseph even notice this? Does Joseph recognize that God's favor is on him? And the only reason why I'm asking is because he's still a slave in Egypt. Like, the Lord's favor is on him. But as Joseph looks around at his context, he's still a slave in Egypt. While the pit has become more tolerable, maybe like throwing somebody throwing some blankets in, he is still a slave in Egypt. And sometimes we become so fixated on our present situation and crisis and difficulty and how it's supposed to be that we don't realize that the favor of the Lord is on us now. And our focus can be so narrow, fixated on what we are not receiving. And don't think for a moment Joseph is thinking, well, all right, I'm digging my life. He's still a slave, and he's far away from his father and mother and home and everything that he knows, and he is doubtful he's ever getting back. And I know this isn't what you want right now. I get it, but is God's favor on you? And if your answer is, no, I'm in a pit, I would say, no, I know. I'm not, this isn't where you want to be, but here's where you are now. Look around. Is God's favor on you? Well, at the end of verse 6, this is an interesting note. We need to know this. In verse 6. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. What this means is Joseph is a hot. <laughs> and after a while, his master's wife, this is Potiphar, this is Potiphar. It says, took note of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, obviously, the language is euphemistic here. She isn't wanting to take a nap. Mrs. Potiphar has noticed that Joseph is a hot, and she's in the mood. Bow, 
Potiphar has apparently been working a lot of hours as the captain of the guard, so here's what happens next. Verse 8, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master doesn't concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now see, what you see here is Joseph is rising above the temptation. And this could not have been easy because the Bible tells us that Potiphar's wife was the 758 B.C. Miss Egypt, doing especially well in the swimsuit competition. I'm just kidding. The Bible doesn't say that. But see, Joseph knows. See, he knows my boss trusts me, and he's elevated me to an amazing position, but you are his. This would be a sin against him and God. Verse 10, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Now, see, this is, this is not just a one-time temptation. And we have those in our life. It is one thing to make it through that one-time temptation. It's another thing to consistently have to overcome it over and over again. And this is the context Joseph finds himself in. It's not like, hey, one day she was whack and she made that offer and he was able to rise above it. No, I mean, this is a continual thing. Like every day he's got to figure out how do I rise above this temptation. And it's a different thing when it consistently comes into our life. And we have temptations that are just like that. What happens when Joseph is tired? Or what happens when he's bored? Or what happens when he reaches that place in life where he resents the fact that he's still a slave and what does it matter anymore what I do? It doesn't seem like I'm ever going to get to go back home like I'm supposed to and I don't even know if God's even around me anymore. I mean, what happens then when that temptation keeps coming up over and over and over again? And we all have those moments where we're most vulnerable. It might not be coming right out of the, your prayer time with the Lord, but when it shows up when you're hacked off at the entire world. Here's what happens in verse 11. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. What that means is, it's just Joseph and Mrs. Potter. Verse 12. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Now, I don't know if he's butt naked, but he's close. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. So she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Now, you see what just happened, right? Joseph is minding his own business. Everything he's done has succeeded. He's done nothing wrong. Like, this isn't even a mixture of, like, your own sin. Like, he's done nothing wrong. And now he's being falsely accused of rape. And there's no witnesses to collaborate her story, and she doesn't even need it because this won't be going to a court of law. He's a slave. And look at the manipulative language that she even uses with her own husband. It's not just look at what Joseph tried to do, but you brought him here. See how she manipulated him to get defensive, that he might even be responsible ultimately for this. And so now he's got to prove himself, and it works. Verse 19, when his master heard the story of his wife, told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. So Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph, once again, totally innocent, finds himself in a pit. This guy can't catch a break. 
And these aren't like minor incidences. Being sold into slavery by your family, if that's not enough for a lifetime kind of tragedy, but in addition to that, now being falsely accused of rape and imprisoned. And if you even kind of learn to trust God and people again after this, you're out. I mean, you're on your own. The universe is against you. You want to talk about playing a trump card. If ever there was a time to play a trump card or a victim card, this, this is it. I'm playing my victim card. But here's what happens. The end of verse 20 says this. But while Joseph was there in the prison, look at this, verse 21, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness. And he granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Okay, in the midst of pit number two, what do we see once again? God's favor. And Joseph has the Midas touch. And everything he touches is gold. It succeeds. And why? God's favor. Now, more on this in just a moment, but this is important. But I want to remind you, Joseph is still not home in Canaan with his father and his mother and his family. Not that he probably wants to see his brothers anyhow, but he is still by way of identity a slave in a prison in a foreign land. His context still looks dark. It is still a pit. He doesn't wake up and think, man, I am living the dream. What was his dream? Do you remember? It was to rule over his brothers. This looks nothing like the dream. In Joseph's mind, something in life went wrong. It took a terrible turn, and he sits where he ought not to be. It's pit number two. Final last pit here, pit number three. It's in Genesis chapter 40, beginning of verse 1. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. And after they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night. And each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do they look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. And then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. This was his dream. He said, in my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and it clustered, ripened into grapes. And Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. And Joseph says, let me tell you what this means. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will be put back into Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, here, here, remember me. Show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and let me get out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So you hear what's happened here? Joseph's saying, hey, in three days you're going to go back and work for the Pharaoh. And while you have Pharaoh's ear, could you put in a word for me? Like, get me out of here. Like, I don't belong here. I'm asking you to do me a favor. Help out a friend. Now, the baker, when he's in there, he sees that the dream that Joseph gave was favorable, the interpretation. So he's getting excited. So he says, so he says to Joseph, you know, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. 
in the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. To which Joseph said, this is what this means. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. <laughs> it sucks to be you. That's what... <laughs> Verse 20, now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday. They got the cake and the candles and they're singing, happy birthday. They go to Hacienda, they get the fruit. <laughs> and he gave a feast for all his officials. And he lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph said to them in his interpretation. Now, verse 23. Here's your next pitch. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Like, are you kidding me? Like, you, you told me your dream. I gave you the favorable interpretation. It even came true. I mean, I gave you hope and encouragement in the darkest hour of your life. I correctly interpreted your dream. I'm not asking you to give me an arm or a leg. I just need you to remember me. I just want you to say something on my behalf. Please, and what you will learn in life is that there are occasions where the accusations of your enemies, while maybe stinging, is nothing in comparison to the silence of your friends. It's not a pleasant thing to be in a pit, one in which those who could have spoken up for you choose to remain silent. A pit indeed when you've simply been forgotten. When you're thinking to yourself, are you kidding me? I was there for you during your biggest life crisis. I helped you walk through that. And now you're just going to walk away. You're not going to say anything. You're just going to forget. You're going to sit in silence because you got your feelings hurt over what? It's a relational pit. And this pit for Joseph will last two years. Two years. He'll forget Joseph. Until two years later... Pharaoh himself has a dream, and it jogs the cupbearer's memory. And he goes, oh, yeah, there's this guy that I was in prison with named Joseph. Now, what do we take with these three pits? I mean, when you read the story of Joseph, as the reader, you get a perspective that Joseph does not. Meaning, you know things in the story and its causation that might escape Joseph's attention because it's not obvious to him. But the narrative of the Joseph story is clearly trying to show even though Joseph is not yet where he will end up being, and even though the conditions around him very much look like they are a pit, God has not abandoned him. The story lets us know that God is still with Joseph, even if Joseph doesn't realize it, and his favor rests on him. It is the Lord who makes Joseph prosper. It is the Lord who gives him the ability to interpret dreams. It is the Lord who ensures that everything he touches in the house of Potiphar succeeds. It's the Lord who places his favor on Joseph so that even though he's in the prison, everyone knows there's something special about this kid. Everyone around is aware that God is with that guy. Oh yeah, then why is he in a dungeon? I don't know. And I can't answer that. But watch. Joseph's work thrives. His administrative hand is so genius and so successful that everyone logically concludes God's on his side. The favor of God will take you where you cannot go on your own. The favor of God will open doors that you cannot open. The favor of God will bring success that you on your own 
cannot bring. The favor of God ushers you into opportunities that you cannot create for yourself. The favor of God moves you to a level of competence that a self-help book cannot. So forget about the motivational, inspirational speaker tape set for a moment. I don't care what Tony Robbins might advise you to do. I don't care what the eighth step to the perfect life might recommend. What you need is the favor of God. The favor of God will be the key to your pit, even if you're still in it. And this is important because you would tend to think that if you had God's favor, you wouldn't be in this pit. And what I would suggest to you from the story of Joseph is God's favor could still be on you even while you're in a pit. And what does this mean? It could be a lot worse. Favor is God's demonstrated delight in us. And so the question for us is, well, how do I get that? Like, how do I live in God's favor? And I think you would be fascinated just to do a word study of God's favor throughout Scripture and all the times that it talks about God's favor resting on somebody. Even his son Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Now, by the way, as a side note, the curriculum back in Kids Cane that we use for our kids, it's called uh, 252 Basics, Basic 52, right? It comes out of Luke 252 about growing in favor with God and man. I want to first begin by telling you some good news, bad news. The bad news is, you don't deserve God's favor. You aren't that righteous. God's favor is not going to fall on you because of something you do to earn it. God is not some sort of mechanical cause and effect response machine where, well, if you say this prayer or you name it and claim it or you pull this lever, God has to pour out his favor on you. The bad news is, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it, and thus you aren't in control of it. The good news is, God's favor isn't dependent on you deserving it. Otherwise, we would all be out. God's favor towards us is unmerited. In fact, some people define grace as unmerited favor. That God's grace is what we want covering us no matter what we're walking in. And as we see in the story of Joseph, the favor of God doesn't mean the lack of suffering or painful experiences. You can't look at someone's pit and assume that they don't have the favor of God. The favor of God might find them even as they are in the pit. God's favor doesn't promise us that we won't get diagnosed with cancer. What you want, though, in the cancer diagnosis is God's favor. God's favor doesn't promise us that we won't ever suffer injustice or from the sins of others, but what we want in those situations is God's favor. And you can seek the favor of the Lord. You could go after it. Like it, it, in fact, the prayer from the great priestly prayer that's offered in, in the book of Numbers, and it's in the movie Braveheart, so you should have all memorized it, where, you know, was it a poetic benediction? It was in Latin. If you don't speak Latin, that will have to remedy, right? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. What is that? That's favor. Psalm 119, verse 58. I have sought your face, some of your translations say, your favor with all of my heart be gracious to me according to your promise. Or Second Kings chapter 13 verse 4, in the narrative it tells us that King Joaz sought the Lord's favor and the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. Or Isaiah 66 verse 2, has not my hand made all these things so they come into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. Like, you could go after it. Like, you should just, part of your prayer should be, God, I need your favor to rest on me. Like, if you're walking or in a pit, your prayer should, God, I need your favor to rest and be upon me. And let me have eyes to see it. 
so that I know that your hand is, even if my contents hasn't changed yet, even if I'm not yet where I'm going to be, at least in this moment, God, I need your favor. You could go after it. And in so doing, place yourself in a favorable position because positioning is everything. Like if you watch uh, like NASCAR, you recognize what's the big deal about the pole position, right? You're first. So you got a better chance than everybody else because right out of the gate, you're first. Or when you're hunting and fishing, what do you want? The best position. Whether it's in the lake or at the tree stand or when you're going to see the fireworks, what do you want? The best seat that you can see. It. It's about positioning. The same is true with God's favor. God is able to do whatever he wants and his favor can fall on anyone he chooses. But my experience and what I most often see in life is that favor finds those who are in a position of obedience. Like if you will stand in a position of obedience, more likely than not, that's where I've seen God's favor rest. It's sort of like uh, living in this circle of blessing. Think like a, you see the movie Meet the Parents, like the circle of trust, right? You said, here's the circle of trust, here's you. See, you want the you to get into the circle of blessing because that is more often than not where God's favor lands. And so if you're in a relationship, you're thinking, well, we want God's favor in a relationship. What I would say is then let your relationships be in a circle of obedience, in a posture of obedience, because that's most likely the place where God's favor will be on your relationship. And I see it all the time. People are in, in relational chaos and catastrophe, and like, you will tell me your story. And every aspect of their, li- of their relationship has been outside of God's will. Like the things that he like, the, the foundation of the relationship, everything built on top of it, like has been always outside of what they knew God wanted for them. And then they can't figure out why everything's in shambles. Well, no, no, like move towards obedience, the position of obedience. That's the place where God's favor most typically lands. Like you want favor in your business, right? Like if you're starting a business, you want God's favor on it. Well, then let your business be in a position of obedience to God. If you run your business out of greed or all sorts of unethical behavior in complete disobedience to the express will of God, then your business will typically be outside the circle of blessing and not in a great position to receive God's favor. Even in a pit, your heart and your life can be obedient to God. And when it is in that position, in spite of your surroundings and context, you can receive the favor of God. So my question for you today as we close is this. Where is your positioning right now? Are you in or out of the circle of blessing? And getting in really isn't all that difficult. Jesus extends the invitation all the time. He'll say in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, well, it's easy. Just repent and receive the good news. Like, if you're over here, that's okay. Repent and come back in here and receive the good news. I don't know all the reasons why you might be in a pit or that you were in a pit. And I can't even give you four easy steps on how to get out of a pit or how to avoid the next pit. What I can tell you is that if you are in one, before you despair that God has abandoned you, consider that he might be with you and that his favor has been on you even though your surroundings and context has not changed. And consider that his favor is on you for a specific reason that at this moment you don't understand. But one day you will. And this is where we're headed next week, by the way. Like oftentimes you come out of pits and you're like, disoriented, you can't, why in the world? And then later in your life, you look back and you go, there it is. That's why. If it feels like you're in a pit, and without God's favor, pull out your compass or your map or your GPS, your activate your locator device and see if your life is being lived outside of God's circle of blessing. And if so, easy. Even this morning, just repent and step back inside. It will be the best place for you to find His favor. And His favor is what you need more than anything else. Let's pray together.
Father, we come to you and we do ask for your favor. We want to have lives that are able to reflect that we can receive it because we're in a position to receive your favor. And even as we say that, we acknowledge because of your sovereignty, you can pour out favor on anyone you want to. We're coming after it, God, and we're seeking it. So with all of our hearts, we seek your face, and we ask that you would pour out your blessings upon us and your favor. So that even right now, if there's somebody who is in a pit or just coming out of a pit, we still might not know all the whys and how come and where were you and what's going on, but we can still know that, no, no, your hand is still on us. That what we touch you, that what we touch succeeds because of your favor. That's what we ask for, we pray in Jesus' name.